This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind is a gripping and colorful account of the intercontinental networks that tied together the free and enslaved masses of the New World. Having delved deep into the gray obscurity of official 18th century records in Spanish, English, and French, Julius Scott has written a powerful history from below. Scott follows the spread of rumors of emancipation and the people behind them, bringing to life the protagonists in the slave revolution. Though the common wind is credited with having, quote, opened up the black Atlantic with a rigor and a commitment to the power of written words, the manuscript remained unpublished for 32 years. Now, after receiving wide acclaim from leading historians of slavery in the New World, it has been published by Verso for the first time, with a foreword by the academic and author Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution, by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. It's 2020 time. Don't worry, this podcast will not be devoured by electoral politics, but this episode and some in the future will be. Elections do matter tremendously, very much including what promises to be an absurdly crowded Democratic presidential primary. If he runs, Bernie Sanders will be the only truly left candidate and the only candidate with the political will to lead a transformation in social and economic relations, a dramatic and necessary break with fossil capital, and a drawdown of U.S. empire. Not that any of this will be easy, especially because a Sanders presidency would most likely have a Democratic Congress that would be significantly to its right, and powerful curbs from an anti-Democratic Supreme Court and Senate filibuster. That said, this podcast will not be a propaganda outfit. As Gramsci said, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. My goal is to provide you, as always, with the sharpest and most honest analysis possible. And so today I bring you three sharp and smart analysts, Brianna Gray, Dave Weigel, and Walid Shahid. Before we get to the interview, I've got to ask you to part with a little bit of your cash at patreon.com slash the dig. Even $1 or $5 a month is huge. And if you do donate $5 a month, you get access to our newsletter, which I've been revamping as a series of sharp essays written by friends of the show analyzing the topics we discuss on the show in greater depth. $10 and I will send you either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. And if you can afford to contribute $20 or more a month, we will send you a box of truly excellent left-wing books, including by the authors you have heard on the show. So, please take a quick moment now to contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p 
A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Brianna Gray, a senior politics editor at The Intercept and an opinion columnist who focuses on progressive political messaging as well as issues relating to identity and culture. David Weigel, a reporter for The Washington Post who covers elections and grassroots politics, and Walid Shahid, the communications director for the Justice Democrats, who previously worked for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cynthia Nixon, and Bernie Sanders. And a quick note, Dave Weigel quietly exited the interview just after our commercial break. Brianna Joy Gray, Dave Weigel, and Walid Shahid, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. It's never too early to become deeply absorbed in a presidential election, so here we are. To start out, I want to ask each of you, before we get into a lot of specifics, to give your general appraisal of both the Democratic primary as it's taking shape and also the general election insofar as we can discern what they might look like from here. So what do each of you see as the general dynamics that will shape both? And what factors and issues do you think will prove decisive in terms of of how they both play out? Well, I I think that there are some um, inescapable shade of 2016, obviously. Um, I think that you're going to have kind of a left faction comprised at the moment solely of Elizabeth Warren. And we'll see if, you know, Bernie Sanders enters the race. But what's different from 2016 is that these, like, there's a much larger cohort of more establishment candidates, shall we say. I'm trying to avoid terms like centrist uh, that tend to set people off. (laughs) Um, But you'll have more establishment candidates, but who have also adopted much of what we think of as Bernie Sanders' 2016 platform, which makes it so that the game isn't so much, you know, establishment versus non-establishment, which would, I think, make it a lot simpler. But there's also this game of having to shade the differences between um, people's platforms now that it's a little bit more opaque than it was in 2016. So you're going to have a lot of debates about what Medicare for all actually means, who actually means Medicare buy-in. People who have taken a no corporate PAC money challenge, you know, that is only you know one way to distance yourself from taking corporate money, right? And it start, starts to kind of shade the differences between people who are substantively embracing kind of left philosophy and people who are more superficially adopting the mantle of you know so-called progressivism, a, a term that in and of itself uh, increasingly is losing meaning over the weeks and months. Waleed? Well, I think what's happening is that a lot of the you know, leaders of the Democratic Party, people like Joe Biden and Terry McAuliffe, people who represent the Democratic Party leadership of, you know, many decades are the most out of touch with where the Democratic Party base is now when it comes to economic and social policy. And so there's going to be a lot of apologizing. Um, Ested in the New York Times wrote this whole story about the apology tour that people (laughs) will have to go on. Um, And I think it shows that, you know, the 2016 primaries, Bernie Sanders campaign really if I don't think if he if he didn't run, I don't think this would be happening where you have a race to, um, you know, who can claim the mantle of uh, big government programs like Medicare for all or free college or Green New Deal and also being really um, 
robust in defending civil rights and, um, you know, protections for marginalized communities. And so uh, I just think you're seeing, you're witnessing like a huge, you know, people like to say the realignment of the Democratic Party. I think that's what's happening. But I think Brianna is right with that, you know, with especially around the Medicare, uh, Medicare for all kerfuffle, like you'll really get to see people's convictions because, you know, what I've noticed is that a lot of these candidates, they might, they might've signed on to these ideas in 2016, 2017, 2018, but when journalists ask them any follow-up questions or they get any pushback on it, they tend to cave really quickly or start to do their triangulation thing um, just because they're uncomfortable with being those kinds of, you know, social Democrats or democratic socialist positions that they've been forced to take because that's where the center of energy is in the Democratic Party. So you kind of saw that with Kamala Harris on some stuff. Um, and I think you'll, you'll continue to see it is that when they're pressed, um, they might start to waffle a little bit. And there is a counteroffensive by, you know, center left think tanks like the Center for American Progress to try to make sure that um, people are putting forward real, quote, realistic and pragmatic solutions, not just pie in the sky ideas like single payer health care, which is, um, seems not to be pie in the sky in most of the advanced industrialized world. <laughs> Dave? Uh, no, so I think there are two things going on. So one is that Barack Obama happened. And for a, for a certain kind of Democratic voter, uh, there is a hard memory of a president coming in with a lot of enthusiasm, but a promise to just make, to make deals and to get us past partisanship, which seems like a trap. And I see a lot of people worrying, uh, just sticking away from policy for now, we'll get, there's, there's a lot to get into. But this touches on everything. A lot of people are worrying that whatever uh, policy they run on, if if they don't if they don't define themselves clearly and make promises that they are are going to enact no matter what the opposition is, then they're going to be back in the Obama trap. That's I think that's the nightmare for a lot of people. Was not losing to, to to Trump being one nightmare, obviously. The other one being electing somebody who doesn't actually deliver. Um, electing somebody who you know. Has a lot of a lot of roundtables about tax credits uh, that just get stopped in the Senate, uh, and so I think the other thing is that Donald Trump happened, and the opportunity cost of running on gigantic promises that may not be sustainable. Uh, obviously, you can't hold on to have the House in a midterm if you don't deliver on on any of that. But the Trump approach of saying we're going to ignore the bean counters in D.C and propose gigantic things that actually seem even better the more that those irritating DC people, and I should say I'm saying this from inside DC right now, <laughs> the irritating D DC know-it-all say are impossible. I think those two things are uh, in influ influencing a lot of thinking. And uh, really, if you look for the people who, the kind of um, you know nattering, we can't afford that, we have to be realistic, we're going to lose votes, wing of the party, it's it's really in this primary represented by just just Joe Biden. And even then, Biden has a couple of ideas like free college and gigantic environmental uh, expansion that are, are not framed in the same bold ways, but are not as incremental as what Obama did. I mean, just those two experiences, I think, run through everything. It's just no one wants to be – there is a real worry of being the candidate who says, I'm going to bring people together because that, that's we've learned that's a trap. One thing that I found kind of baffling and I think confuses a lot of people is what's up with the timing of candidate announcements. What are candidates thinking about when deciding whether to announce earlier or later on? And do you all think it matters? I mean, one thing about the timing that's interesting is this, again, this Medicare for all thing. Um, so you're Kamala Harris, you announce early, you come out with a pretty strong, op uh, you know, opening act, which was this 
rally of 20,000 people in Oakland, um, a video hearkening back to Shirley Chisholm and, you know, really telling a positive story about an inclusive America, uh, coming out saying that you're in favor of Medicare for all, um, as well as making your number one political priority a, you know, middle-class tax cut or their EITC that she claims to support. All that stuff is like a trial balloon for her, you know, her success. But what ends up happening with some of these early candidates is they get pounded early on these policy ideas where they, where they're not super comfortable. And so I think, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders, who seems to be waiting before he jumps in, I think he wants to see a lot of these earlier candidates kind of you know, fall on their own sword a little bit because they'll struggle to defend these ideas because they don't actually know them very well. And then their staffers actually don't know them very well. A lot of the staffers who make up these campaigns come from the more center-left establishment wing of the Democratic Party and work for politicians who've stood against these ideas for a long time. So if you follow some of these staffers on Twitter, they're like, you can see their live research of single-payer healthcare, free college, or a Green New Deal as it's happening, um, which is kind of funny to follow. But um yeah, I don't know. In terms of the the actual timing, I think, you know, for the candidates who have less name recognition, such as Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, it's a good strategy. And for those with higher name recognition, like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, sitting it out seems to be helpful for them, too. Yeah, I think there's this interesting thing where, in some ways, Bernie Sanders hasn't stopped running. He's been campaigning since 2016 on these this policy platform, you know, yeah. not um, for himself, but for these ideas. And so there's a way in which he doesn't need to announce to continue advancing that agenda. I did hear, you know, some time ago that, you know, Sanders was going to announce earlier. And it's curious to me, I'm not, I'm not sure why that hasn't happened. But since it's so kind of presumed that he is going to enter the race, I don't know how much it substantively matters. Dave? That's a good question because this is this is one of those things that political experts uh, and here I'm kind of raising my hand. Clearly, uh, we pretend we know the best way to do this, then we are all blown away by who did it, who did it, who did a good or bad job. I think there's a general consensus that Elizabeth Warren was very smart uh, in announcing very early on a news cycle that she kind of had to herself, getting and now getting in, having sizable crowds that were organized the right way. There's just a, cu- a couple of optics metrics, and both of those are kind of DC jargon words, but they really do influence how things are covered, uh, that that she did quite well. Uh, And I think for everyone who is not Biden or Bernie, there is a sense that uh, there's staff out there that was not super loyal to anyone in particular, uh, staff that you met or your staff met in the the course of donating to candidates or campaigning in the midterms. And the longer you waited, the the less people there were going to be to hire. Uh, That's not really a factor for for. Sanders, who has kind of a turnkey operation ready to go if, if he does run. And, and for Biden, uh, frankly, that's even even stranger because he has an operation that has never really run a presidential campaign itself, just a lot of people who are kind of loyal to him and are expected to be part of an operation. Um, but uh, he, he starting off with you know high 20 poll, poll numbers, just made a different calculation of what it takes to get in early. And I think for other people, there, there's all, every cycle has a John Kasich or a Fred Thompson uh, or a Rick Perry 
to name three people who you'll notice did not become nominees, but kind of <laughs> three awesome to see if guys. anyone else. Three awesome guys uh, who all started who waited to see if people started sucking wind and if there was an opening for them. Uh, you call them the vulture candidates, I guess. Uh, I'm not saying I don't see a Democrat in that position. I think you're you know we're we're cursed to live through some DC insiders Hillary Clinton rumor every four or five weeks, but I don't see that. I see. Uh, <laughs> My sense is that Biden actually um, is conflicted. Uh, he's, both he and Beto O'Rourke are very inspiring to kind of uh, great man narrative reporters because he has this long wintry struggle of whether he should run or not. And I think, but that's real. I mean, he, and I think he's more aware than a lot of his super fans that a 76-year-old guy who had very problematic opinions on many issues for years is going to have trouble in a, in a, in a climate where you know if you – we're 19 and we're blackface at a party. People are calling for to re- resign. Not that Biden did that. I mean, if, if I knew that, I'd write that as a scoop. Uh, and then with with Bernie, I think he's also conflicted. I talked to him from this from this recording probably uh, 10 days ago, and he said, you know, he there are people in this race that agree with every that have signed on to all his bills. He acknowledges that that is not the case in 2016, and he is seeing if there is the enthusiasm and the possibility for a more radical campaign, uh, one that you would proudly say, yes, we're going to eventually eliminate most private insurance, or mo- we're going to transition to fossil fuels in, tw- uh, fossil fuels in 12 years, something much more radical, much more opposed by the corporate interests. He's sort of raising his own bar for entry, uh, despite all the work, more work than anybody he did in campaigning around the country last year. To sort of structure the rest of this conversation, I want to propose that we separate our analysis of the field into a few lanes and then hear from you if I if you think I have this totally wrong. First, the left lane, which potentially includes Sanders, Warren, and Sherrod Brown. Then the old boss radical centrist lane, which might be occupied by Joe Biden and Michael Bloomberg and who knows who else. Then the meet the new boss, same as the old boss lane, featuring perhaps Gillibrand, Harris, Booker, and others who don't at all come from the left, but as Brianna mentioned earlier, will be doing their best to pretend that they're entirely and deeply, committedly progressive. And then there's the potential let's do Obama again lane, occupied potentially by Beto and who knows who else. And then I'm not sure where to place Julian Castro. Tulsi Gabbard, Jeff Merkley, the former governor of Colorado, Amy Klobuchar, the guy who is mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I'm sure I'm missing some people, but do you agree with this taxonomy? Do you think that will hold up in some sort of structured way, or am I missing some key dynamics that will ultimately play a big role in winnowing down what promises to just be an absurdly large field? I've thought a lot about the taxonomy, and uh, I've even thought about how to pronounce it. And Everyone disagrees on what they are. Uh, there are friends of Joe Biden who insist there is some kind of moderate lane that he will have all to himself. And you know, the irony that something Waleed I think is probably very happy about is that the, the definition of moderate is even moving to the left. We live in a world now where Sherrod Brown, his position is more one of the more centrist Democratic nominees, which is quite which is quite an achievement and took a lot of work for people to, to get that get that point. Um, but so there are people I've seen put Sherrod Brown and Joe Biden and John Hickenlooper in a moderate lane. Hickenlooper probably belongs there. Uh, I've heard actually a couple of Democrats who really don't want to have Biden to run group things into the old white guy lane and everybody else. 
uh, and just thinking that, and I do hear that a lot with uh, Democratic voters that uh, the phrase I hear the most often when I ask about Biden is, uh, oh, he's great, but, and then they'll start talking about how he's he's old or he had his time. Um, and I think that might be uh, just as useful because even the people who are senators versus people like Julian Castro, um, the senators have voting records, which can be problematic in ways that, you know, being a HUD secretary, a mayor or not, but they're actually kind of, there's, there's a lot of coherence around the agendas they're running on. I think that I've come around to thinking it might be more of a uh, old guys arguing that we need to just go back to the lunch pill voter and knock on his door a hundred times till he, he, he comes back to us versus the young people saying there's a new coalition. We basically won the midterms by the, with that coalition. Let's excite them. Let's not go back to the past. Yeah. My, my response to your grouping, what, you know, my, my ears kind of went up when you put, when you said, who's the new Obama. And then you uh, said it was Beto because there's a lot of people who would say the new Obama lane, they would look at it through an identity lens and say, it's, Kamala and Booker, because there are a lot of people who approach politics primarily through that lens. One of the things that I, one of the messages that I see most prevalently online is people, who, you know, mainstream Democrats who say things like anyone but a white male, right? And there are a lot of people, not wrongly so, I'd say, given the the mass of candidates who have like broadly cast themselves as 2016 Bernie. A, you know, discount version, they're all the same, <laughs> you know? And so if you're, if you're choosing between this kind of like bulk of centrist moderate candidates, you know, why not pick the one that's also, you know, half black and half Indian and a woman, you know, why not pick the one that also, you know, ticks all these boxes, which is why it's my feeling that Kamala Harris is going to be the one to beat of that cohort depending on how much he continues to get pummeled on these criminal justice issues and, you know, how much support she's able to maintain from the black community, which a lot of people presume, but which I see as, you know, wavering a great deal because you can, you can disrespect a community and work against, you know, their interests in a lot of ways. Black Americans have put up with a lot from the democratic party, but in this environment where criminal justice issues have been defined by the party as like the black issues in a way that I think is kind of politically self-interested and I can get into if you want, but they, they have held up the key identity issue for black people as being police reform, criminal justice issues, than to try to hold up a, a black candidate that everyone's supposed to be excited about whose greatest vulnerability is in that area. It, it's, it's dicey. But apart from that, apart from that, it's difficult to understand why anybody would default for even, even like centrists, would default for a Joe Biden character when there's Kamala's and, and Booker's. I think one other thing is there are a lot of, I would add a lane that, that's people who are running for VP. So I think when you're looking at perhaps a, a Booker, um, uh, Buttigieg, uh, the, sorry, the guy from South Bend. <laughs> that's his name on the show officially Buddha. right now. <laughs> Sorry about is, that. I can't stand for this anti-Maltese bias in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Castro, some of these other people, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, seem likely that there's a credible lane to the White House, but there are so for some of these white candidates, including Bernie Sanders, it will become really important for them to be able to source some diversity on their VP ticket. And so another question that has been raised. Another idea that was raised is, you know, are some of these people, particularly white candidates, going to announce with a 
partner with a, with a VP? And is that something that can try to uh, start to try to like um, mitigate their, you know, whiteness, which in, in this environment is, is somewhat of a, a liability? Waleed, what's your take, especially on, on Kamala Harris? Because her law and order, pretty reactionary record as a prosecutor really does seem to be sticking more than I thought it would pretty quickly and has been difficult for her to shake. What's your take on, on all this? Um, well, to start on the, the first piece that um, Dave and Brianna were just talking about, I think there is like a path to the White House for a lot of these smaller candidates, but it's not to the presidency. <laughs> um, like I, if you're if you're like, you know, a mayor of a, of a small town, Indiana, or if you're, you know, um, Amy Klobuchar, any of these people, like there's no incentive not to run for president. You build your fundraising contacts, you build your national profile, you get media attention, you know, you can double your Twitter followers, triple your Twitter followers, just just <laughs> run, you know, like that's the incentive there. It's you'll be on the stage, you'll be part of the discussion. And, um, you know, I think I, I did hear one staffer of one of these presidential campaigns tell me that they welcomed having, you know, some of these uh the low na- name recognition progressive candidates on the debate stage with them because it would defend progressive ideas more uh, against centrist candidates. So, you know, stacking the room kind of will would might be helpful. I thought that was kind of a crazy idea, but um, or maybe it's a spin, but you know, it's an interesting one. On Kamala Harris, yeah, I mean, it seems to be sticking. I don't know if it's sticking with like people in the grassroots or with voters, but it's the press really seems to have caught on to it. And, you know, there are all these videos of her saying pretty, frankly, disgusting things about <laughs> how she wants to prosecute uh, families whose children are truant. I mean, if you're an undocumented family in California and you're prosecuted because your child skips class one day, that is devastating. I mean, the fact that she's promoted those policies, laughed about it, and made yeah. it central to her career as a prosecutor in California is you know, shameful and she should apologize. And at the same time, look, I think what's going to happen with Kamala Harris is, is the strength of the black left, the strength of Black Lives Matter. Are they going to hold her to account? Are they going to talk about their experience with her in California? You know, Alicia Garza is from California. A lot of the founders of Black Lives Matter and a lot of the leaders had experience with her in California. And I don't, I don't know if they're planning to really speak out about their experiences. And it's a problematic uh, not problematic, but it's a tricky situation for a lot of them since um, the movement was a lot about centering um, black women and centering queer women in, in the movement um, and moving away from like the kind of Jesse Jackson church-based model of the civil rights movement. So, you know, I feel for them. But again, just like in 2016, there will be a question on the strength of the black left and the, uh, the black left in the Democratic Party primary. I foresee a Michelle Alexander op-ed on the subject on the horizon. Uh, I, I, so. I, I think that is also, I think that will happen. <laughs> Dave? Yeah, I, I think I, I think it might be Buttigieg who talked about reading uh, the new Jim Crow. Uh, the, the question with Her- any Harris stuff, again, I, I just keep kind of stepping back and thinking it's going to be a couple, uh, it, maybe it might even be just Biden representing the old Democrats versus everyone else. And you do wonder about this dynamic where if there's there are a few things that, anger people about Harris that Biden did not do legislatively decades earlier. Uh, and so I wonder about that push-pull of, of uh, how much voters are going to oppose her on those positions when there's going to be a question of who's the strongest person to take to take out Biden. Uh, I, I can see 
I mean, it's good that people are vetting these records this early, and it's actually kind of a it stands apart from some other primaries we've had. But I think there's that there's that question, and I think that 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 lane that does that does remain pretty open. I mean, uh, even someone like Gillibrand didn't get a ton of buzz going in. We just lived through too many cycles where people go through these town halls. Uh, they show that they they can stand to pressure, especially they have a couple of scandals that they that they pull through and they and they shine. So I can see her doing that. What's interesting about Paris, I think, is that she's she's not doing what Biden used to do, which is you know hippie punching, which is. Uh, she's not. She has tried to rebrand herself as a progressive prosecutor. She is not doing. If you go back and watch uh, Biden's response to the State of the Union, I think in 1989 or 1990, where he is attacking George W. Bush for not, George w. Bush not to build more prisons. Right? She's never going to do that. She's never going to do the, uh, the old Democratic sister soldier thing, uh, which is fascinating because you have a president who, you know, cannot have enough rallies with cops and urge urge cops to be rough when they arrest people and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, who you know has, doesn't really defend the war on drugs, but is continuing it. So uh, I, I just wonder about those dynamics because you have some of the, you have in, in Trump a version of these 1988 politics happening at all times with a, a country that's moved on from them in a big way, uh, and she has too. Because with with Harris, remember she she comes up in California politics and she almost loses her 2010 race for attorney general because even in California, even in 2010, being branded as the anti-death penalty San Francisco attorney general. Who doesn't put enough people in prison uh, was was spooking would spook a lot of people. So I, I mean, her, her navigating this is one of the most interesting things happening in the primary. I agree, she's not going to do the sister soldier thing. But the problem is, um, yeah. she's been doing it her entire career, and it's on tape. <laughs> so she's she's caught, you know, she's in a pickle, and I don't see how she's going to extricate herself from this because it's, it's, she's doing a very good role play at the moment. You know, I, I was watching her on the View. And, and I, I took a lot from how she responded to a question about how do you feel about um, AOC's latest, whatever it was that week. And some other Democrats had, you know, done the, you know, she needs to sit down and learn and wait her turn. She just, it was like her first or second week on the job. And Harris didn't take the bait and was like, I really appreciate the new energy she's giving to the party, et cetera, et cetera. She, she is doing a really good facsimile of someone who's genuinely on board but she cannot erase the fact that because she got such negative feedback for being perceived as somehow progressive in the context of her california prosecutorial career she doubled down hard um and those i don't see those clips as going away and i don't see the the outrage is coming from the top the way i've seen other kinds of outrage you know the the bernie sanders giving a state of the union response outrage absolutely came from media people at the top. The outrage that I'm seeing around Kamala Harris is from a lot of the same people who probably consider themselves to be fairly moderate, um, but who are deeply invested in the outlook of the black community and their, their own community. And a lot of like grassroots people who are very frustrated and disgusted by uh, Kamala Harris's kind of cavalier indifference to the effect of her putative policies. And the existence of Philly DA Larry Krasner seems like a problem for her because it shows that prosecutors don't have to be like that. Yep. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the the beautiful thing about this whole seat change. There are some people who are who have a mentality that says this is unfair. You know, this is you just have to make compromises to get ahead in this world. Uh, Kamala Harris, she's a, she's a black woman. She was a prosecutor. She she had to be tough on crime. 
if you're a woman, they, they made these um, excuses about Hillary Clinton too, right? If you're a woman, you have to be a war hawk. You have to come out strong or they will, they will tell you that you're not qualified to lead. Well, one, I would say if that's true, if it's the case that you have to be a, a worse politician to be a leader from a marginalized group, then that's, that's an argument for not voting for people from marginalized groups. But I don't actually think that that's true. And I think that what people like Larry Krasner and AOC and Bernie Sanders' success in 2016 show is that that old script um, was never potentially true and was kind of self-serving. And that when people do the work to shift the Overton window and start to expand people's political imagination, you can get entirely different results. And it's really shamed everybody else who just took for granted that they had to take the pharma money or lock up a bunch of black people and chortle about um, criminalizing truancy. You know, it's, it's a different world. Well, I don't know, Brianna, if, if you're if you're a woman, no one will respect you if you don't walk onto the stage dripping Iraqi blood. <laughs> right. The next thing we're going to see is like a woman like the. The, the first female president is going to be a pro-life woman who, who you know, who, who comes on stage with like 15 babies attached to Bjorn to deliver her body. What was the what was the Twitter joke everyone sending around when the CIA nomina- nomination was happening? Was like the hand clap emojis, you know, right. hire more female torturers. Right. Uh, right. I think that, that might be a more online attitude than a like a rank and file attitude. I mean. Uh, but I, I, I do think that's true. But you wonder about the the capacity for forgiveness and what people are willing to get to get past as they consider who can beat Trump. I mean, if there is polling showing that uh, someone like Harris would would beat him, there's just a lot that people are willing to swallow. Uh, but again, that's in the meantime, there's a huge debate. The question is, who's actually? I don't think I'm not. I'm just not sure what candidate would go after uh, Harris on this. Uh, Bernie could, but it has not historically been the way he does it. It is more of a media conversation about if this is going to hurt her. Uh, and it's really kind of, um, boil it down, it's really kind of up to South Carolina. I mean, it's up to the first first primary with a critical mass of black voters, um, because at the moment, <laughs> the, the polling just, it's all name ID. Biden's in the lead. There are two black candidates who have uh, committed many heresies, uh, for, as far as the black left is concerned, is what Lee's been pointing out. And I, I've been there a few times, and frankly, that that's just not on the tip of black voters' tongues there. I, mean, I haven't talked – I haven't canvassed all of them. been in conversations with dozens of black voters who were just seeing them for the first time. They're like, oh, I like their message. <laughs> like, it hasn't gotten out yet. So you wonder how – if I was um, America Rising or Republican group trying to undermine the Democrats, that's the first thing I'd go after. Uh, I'm not sure where it comes from first. Waleed? One thing I was going to say back on the – like, you know, kind of identity politics stuff that's going on in the 2020 Democratic primary is that, you know, it's all about perspective. Like the United States is so retrograde and the hierarchies are so deep around issues around um, representation of people of color and women that, you know, when you talk to any person on the British left, they're confused about the year of the woman in the U.S. when they have Theresa May as prime minister. And they're like, you know, we don't really get why this is as much of a thing. When you talk to South Africans, they're like, we don't understand why, you know, progressives on the U.S. would be into Barack Obama or Kamala Harris. Like the U.S. is so behind some of these other countries in terms of representation that it makes sense why people want, you know, that is a lot of their politics. Um, On the Kamala Harris question, look, like, I think one thing to highlight here is that around the time she was uh, serving as a prosecutor in California was the rise of the 
anti-mass incarceration organizations and movement. Like there were groups like, I forget some of their names, but like Critical Resistance and California yeah, yeah. United for a Responsible Budget, Curb. And I'm curious what their perspective is because I think Michelle Alexander even says in her book that she came up with the phrase, the new Jim Crow, when she saw it on a sign in Oakland. She saw the sign, the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration at a prison abolitionist group meeting um, flyer uh, in Oakland. So this was the milieu that Kamala Harris was swimming in, but she was, you know, in politics, she was in a, a, a in the Democratic Party establishment while things were happening in the grassroots that now have caught on nationally because of Black Lives Matter. And so it was just a, it was a completely different time. And the fact that someone like Larry Krasner was much more aligned with the social movement relative to Kamala Harris, who was not and actually, you know, criticizes the social movement for saying ridiculous things like schools, not jails, uh, which has become the rallying cry. How absurd. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, it just shows that she was, there is a way where she could say something like, you know, the movement has really changed public opinion on this. And, you know, I think things are different now, but on CNN, she really seemed to take a very defensive, non-apologetic stance to her record, which you know, we'll see. It, it has not served Elizabeth Warren well to not apologize for some of these past things. I, I don't know about Kamala Harris. And I think Dave is right. I don't know how much the anti-mass incarceration and black left groups have, how much sway they have amongst the Democratic primary electorate in, South, in a state like South Carolina. That's to be seen. So Kirsten Gillibrand, she has identified herself in the Senate strongly with the Me Too movement and has pivoted somewhat to the left on a number of issues. But when she was a congresswoman before that, representing a district in upstate New York, she was a pretty serious pro-gun, blue dog Democrat. What's her pitch going to look like if she runs? And do you all think that her chameleon-like trajectory will come back to haunt her? So in 2016, there was a lot of conversation about experience, right? And who was qualified. And there was this really interesting thing that happened where Hillary Clinton's experience, which is substantive, um, was tallied up kind of selectively in a way that was perceived to be greater and more important than Senator Sanders' experience, who was, who was cast as someone, you know, didn't have a real job till he was 40 and he never got anything done in the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. And people started to really fetishize this idea of like experience and what it meant. What I, what I think is going to be an interesting turn of events in 2020 is that what becomes most important is not necessarily how long you've been in the public sphere, but how consistent, uh, some, some combination of how long you've been in there and how consistent your views have been over that period of time. Um, when you have someone like Senator Sanders, who's entire kind of appeal isn't about personal charm, charisma, dynamism, anything like that, but about the fact that you can turn on a, a YouTube clip of him talking in 1985, 1975, 1995, and hear basically the, the same speech. Um, that engenders a lot of trust in a population that has, you know, kind of all-time um, lows of um, uh, confidence in government. And I am really concerned about some of these people's ability to negotiate their record. Now, I do think it's possible to, to do a, a legitimate mea culpa and reinvent yourself. I'm not interested in 
holding politicians to a standard that says they're never able to be uh, to evolve and change. But I think in the same way as when we're talking to people like Ralph, Ralph Northam and you know all the, all the Me Too stuff, you know you can't just jump to forgiveness without some level of you know absolution of um, demonstrating that you are actually different and that you've learned from your mistakes and that you are committed to being a different person going forward. And I think it's difficult to in the short term cycle of an election season you know, prove those kinds of commitments. And I'm interested to see how people attempt to do so. Wally? On Jake Tapper, a couple of uh, weeks ago, um, Jake Tapper brought up a really good point. He said, you said, uh, he, he said to Kirsten Gillibrand, you say that Trump's immigration agenda is racist. Here's flyers that you sent out in your Senate <laughs> campaign, or I forget if it was congressional campaign or Senate campaign, but where you like said you don't support driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants, that you want more border security on the wall, and you think that you know hardworking Americans should be first in line for benefits, not not uh, quote illegal immigrants. How is what you're saying is uh, what you said back then not racist? So she had a terrible answer to that. She was like, I went down to Brooklyn and learned about people of color which is crazy because there were people of color and undocumented immigrants in the district that she represented. It's it's absurd for her to say otherwise. So, you know, I just think this apology tour that some of these candidates will have, will have to go on will, will look pretty ridiculous um, as soon as it gets going. And, you know, every candidate has some stuff that they, you know, some stuff in their background or their track record that isn't perfect. But some stuff like that that's so polarizing today is, I think really gonna just make her a really uncompetitive candidate. I, I just don't. I just don't see how she gets out of it. It's it's indefensible to be honest. And I'm not saying that just as someone from you know the left or the progressive movement. I just think it's it just shows that a lack of conviction, a lack of mm -hmm. genuineness, a lack of principles on one of the most one of the biggest issues in the Democratic Party electorate, which is immigration. Dave. Yeah, although in those answers, you see some of the risks for people like Sanders and to an extent Sherrod Brown. I mean, I'll start with Sherrod Brown because we didn't talk very much about him, and he's not a declared candidate yet. Um, you know, Sherrod Brown was married once. He got divorced. It was a messy divorce. The findings when they were released uh, in one of his first races were that his ex-wife claimed that he was he was uh, abusive uh, just in one, in one circumstance. But not to belabor it, but that has been litigated a bit in Ohio, but not really nationally. And with Sanders, there's, I think, a, a certitude among many Sanders supporters that he has been, because he's been through a campaign uh, and because he's been consistent, there's so much video of him saying the same thing, that he is robust in a way that other candidates are not. And I, I'm not sure, uh, especially as, as Brianna was talking, I was remembering one of the actual memorable Hillary ads, one I thought was very good, was uh, one she ran during the primaries that was starting, I think, in the 80s, her talking about women's rights. And it just cut from speech to speech to speech, so it, it was kind of one coherent sentence. Uh, so you, you, you know, she could do that. I'm not, I'm not comparing, she was not consistent on many, many things. But you can do that, and it's very compelling. I think uh, – what I keep circling around with Sanders that he never actually has been in a national campaign where people wanted to uh, – where multiple people wanted to take him out and where he was seen as a potential front runner. And I think some of the coverage of him in the in the years between 16, looking at uh, Jane Sanders' wife's uh, handling of the college, looking into his old writings, things like that, I wonder how that would come up. Uh, and so I almost think that Gillibrand has been underrated because she's been through several rounds of aren't you a gigantic phony <laughs> already uh, in a way that I don't think Sanders has. He's gotten – I mean mm -hmm. he has not gotten – he has not gotten good coverage. He's gotten a lot of you know, of the normal 
how you're going to pay for this, you socialist coverage. I'm not saying the media's been soft on him. I'm saying the the normal things that you you dig up with a candidate and say, can you explain why you said X in 1991? Uh, a lot of it's been kind of clownish so far because people who hate Sanders don't understand his appeal. You know, you've seen these videos on Twitter of him in 1991 talking about how he doesn't like the Democratic Party. And people are like, okay, duh. But I don't know. I don't quite. I don't quite know what else is out there because there is stuff. You know, the whole Kurt Eichenwald. There's you know um, stuff that would have destroyed him in sixteen. I'm not sure about that. But you, I, I, I actually think Gillibrand having moved to the left in New York and dealt with some of these issues before in a pretty tough press corps that's been very skeptical. I think she's actually become underrated at how she deals with that. And uh, Warren. Warren has dealt with the Native American thing in two Senate races, et cetera. Um, it's really a couple other people who I don't – I think are still in the kind of honeymoon phase of isn't this an interesting candidate. That's certainly the case for Biden. I mean there's been stuff vetted about Biden, but the impression of Biden that's out there remains this lovable uncle, uncle Onion character. Uh, and I, we have not seen how he handles people actually litigating his background. Because when he ran for president in 19 – sorry, in 2008 – People didn't care enough about these sorts of things that are now uh, heretical for Democrats. Yeah, I, I don't know that I, I buy that. People people often say, oh, Sanders isn't vetted yet. But given the level of anxiety that we've seen from the corporate sector, the Twitter that came out of uh, Davos, the threat that he poses, um, the substantive structural threat that he, he poses to to be Sanders for a moment, the, the oligarchy, like, mm-hmm. I... I frankly think that we see silly stuff like videos of him drinking in Russia and people trying to make something of the the so-called rape essay from 1974 or whatever, because there's not a lot else that's there. You know, the Jane Sanders college stuff is was serious and was now put to bed. You know, I mean, it was the implications for her were serious. And on the other hand, people like Kirsten Gillibrand, the fact that she spent the bulk of her career representing big tobacco is something that I would gather 99% of Americans don't even know is a fact. I'd say that 90% of people who know who Kirsten Gillibrand is don't know that that's a fact. Um, And so I'm very concerned about that and other things that are going to come out from her record of doing this Annie Oakley routine in upstate New York, the same routine that um, Hillary Clinton did, where you have to kind of pander to the, a more rural, rural audience. The inconsistency between that and her, her new leftist veneer are going to become only more pronounced over time, in my view. I dare anyone to run against Russian baths because any enemy of Abania <laughs> is an enemy of the people. I'm just end uh, of story. I want to hear Raleigh's take on that. The only thing I'd, I'd add is the party's bases are very different. They have different interests, different biases, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the I've been consistent on this and my opponent has not argument totally fell flat against Donald Trump because he defined himself as a convert who would fight. And I feel like that is how a Harris or a Gillibrand is going to is going to put themselves up there. Uh, there are there are things they've done in the past that are heretical, but they know how to fight, which is actually I think a problem for Biden that he still comes across as the ineffectual VP. I'm not saying I think he comes across this when people you know, the argument for him is all right. You ha- the argument against him is you're the guy who has the great relationships with the Republicans. What about Merrick Garland? What about half of the Obama agenda? What did that ever get you? Uh, so I do think there is an opening. The consistency is is potent, but there's also a, a point at which people feel like they're being lectured to and that they're not pure enough because a lot of people converted. I mean, people, uh, Howard Dean has talked a lot about, uh, uh, has talked about this, about how gay marriage being the one that most people have been, more people were wrong on and, and are now you know enlightened than any other issue in the last 20 years. Um, there 
there wasn't much of an advantage for the person who said, but I was right about this in 2002. I think <laughs> there is. I think a lot of people, I, I personally was very disappointed in the fact that Hillary Clinton was one of the latest, even in a, in a, in a whole landscape of people who, you know, quote unquote, evolved on gay marriage. <laughs> she was absolutely one of the latest in, I think, 2013 to finally come on board. And not only that, she wasn't just saying, uh, you know, my personal beliefs are, you know, like kind of like sidestepping the question. She was saying things like, I, I firmly believe as a Christian that marriage is between a man and a woman. She was towing that line up into a very uncomfortable near um, present. And, you know, I, I think to, to cast Trump as just kind of a, a flip flopper, I think misses the, the larger issue, which is that Trump manifested, he demonstrated his ability to be quote unquote independent by doing the mm-hmm. unpopular thing. If I say, hey, I'm a trailblazer, you can trust me, I've changed my position, and I'm willing to commit to you now that I love puppies, well, nobody cares. Everybody loves puppies. But if I sit, come out and say, I'm willing to you know, sit here and you know, stand behind pedophiles, well, you might not agree with me, but to take the political risk to take that position engenders confidence that I'm doing what I want independently, and I'm doing what I believe in, as opposed to following mm-hmm. some kind of party line. That was Trump's charm and appeal. And that cuts through the idea of him being somehow politically opportunistic. Waleed? I mean, I used to think that the Democratic Party electorate was pretty different than the Republican Party electorate in terms of liking that aspect of what Trump brings. But the one name we haven't mentioned so far is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the effect that she brings to the Democratic Party, where there is a huge, the, the response she is getting from um, pretty normy partisan Democrats, center left liberals, not DSA members, not Bernie Bros. Um, you know, just mm-hmm. normal Democrats is not Bernie Bros like Brianna. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, just even people like my parents. Uh, I think the the risks that she's taking on things like the Green New Deal, uh, on proposing things like the seventy percent marginal tax rate on millionaires. Like all this stuff is having an effect on the Democratic Party candidates where within a week of AOC doing that 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper, uh, Warren and Bernie both released proposals for wealth taxes and Kamala Harris on The View was asked what she thought about these tax increases and she thought, you know, it's a good idea, good energy AOC's bringing. You know, she didn't confirm support for it, but I think it will cause a scramble for candidates to take more risks on uh, bold policy ideas. So. In 2014, I went to a conference where Sandy Darity, Stephanie Kelton, Derek Hamilton, some of the leading thinkers in the Democratic Party right now on things like the racial wealth gap and the federal jobs guarantee and uh, monetary uh, policy. It was kind of a fringe conference a little bit in a lot of ways where they were discussing these ideas. And now these three are are leading the policy debate on the Democratic Party side. So I think there will be a lot more risk taking from candidates, but it might look awkward from people like Kamala Harris, who takes risks on things like a middle class tax cut, which is like halfway there, but she misses the actual populist part of it, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an enemy in your story, something that's actually, you know, bottom up rather than top down. And so, yeah, I just think there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm and energy for promote for putting together big ideas. And uh, producers and reporters I talk to say they're very interested in substantively uh, covering the policy debate in 2020 because they're kicking themselves for not doing it in 2016 and have this like, you know, kind of Catholic shame around uh, how they caused Donald Trump. So 
there's i think that health that public shaming is pretty healthy too i've already seen you know people saying i guess we were forced to cover elizabeth warren's dna test as if nothing else is happening or getting <laughs> pretty well dragged for it and i noticed the times has been kind of patting itself on the back for getting into the actual policy on this uh certainly i find it more interesting than the the can't exchange I will. I just say that one prediction a lot of people had was that, oh, Trump's going to define these Democratic primaries because he'll take out these Democrats and insult them and people respond to insults. And Democrats haven't really given a crap about that. I mean, you know, Warren's unique situation, which actually dates back to 2012, that's one thing. I think actually the only person who's taken bait recently was Sanders because, you know, Liz Cheney attacked socialism and he, and he attacked her back, but not much. I mean, they're really kind of ignoring the Republicans because they've I think in a lot of Democrats' minds, they've proven themselves to be just totally dishonest about how they, how they run the country, You know, everything from debt to whether the president has huge executive powers. They're kind of ignoring them, which leaves a lot more space to cover the policy. Yeah, and it's, it's almost Republicans that seem to be on the defensive with uh, Donald Trump using a moment, taking a moment in his State of the Union address to attack socialism as well. I think the word is shook. I think the word is shook for that, yeah. <laughs> That's that's what I heard. It was like, what 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 a brilliant move he did to criticize socialism. And I thought, well, one, I mean, I lived through the Obama era. I didn't live through the you know Medicare era, but that was what Ronald Reagan was calling it. And two, it's you know, what's the old thing? Don't think of an elephant. If you say think of, if you don't say don't think of an elephant, somebody thinks of it. The fact that he's he's thinking that that is part of the conversation is like revolutionary. So and, some of that old thinking about oh he really nailed them by saying socialism. I'm like, you guys are getting exactly backwards. They're really worried about this. I mean, I'm seeing. <laughs> In response to what Dave, I mean, Dave knows this well in terms of how, you know, just like hyper partisanship is causing socialism to rise very quickly because uh, Howard Schultz is getting dragged in the media for being an out of touch billionaire. And then Fox News constantly is, attack, is attacking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which makes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that much more popular amongst Democrats because she gets attacked by Republicans so much. I don't know what really happened with Bernie Sanders and that phenomenon didn't actually happen to the extent that's happening with AOC, where I'm seeing so many Hillary Clinton supporters online who, um, and even in my normal life, like the, who supported Hillary Clinton, but, you know, are tweeting things like, well, if, you know, I guess I'm a socialist now, if Trump, if that's what Trump is not. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's like this Negative weird polarization is kind of, a hell of a drug. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of nuts to see it happen. Well, I don't want to be funny about it, but I do think that part of what that is about is that. Democrats have played this game for years that says that the most important thing, the most identifying feature of the party is that we are the party of minorities and women and gay people and every other marginalized group. And so here comes Ocasio-Cortez um, with, you know, kind of Bernie's ideas and a package that is much more appealing to this group. And they have been trained to, like, fundamentally be unable to reject anything that comes in this package. You know, so like there's this unless you're like fully like a black Republican, you know, it's very difficult for like a mainstream, the mainstream liberal identity to reject someone who looks the way she does, besides which she is so like individually, personally compelling. But I think there's going to be this interesting moment where there are they're forced to reckon with the fact that her ideas uh, have most the most simpatico with Bernie Sanders' ideas, who many of them continue to revile because you know he's an old white man, and they're going to be forced to recognize that she is more than just 
the, the vessel that she comes in. And there might be a tipping point where some of those people fall off, but I think a lot of people it's going to be, she's like a Trojan horse for socialism. It's fabulous. I, I get asked, I get asked like uh, maybe like 10 times a week, like, why do you think she's so popular? Why do you think she's doing so well on social media? And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with her individual talent, her individual charisma, her individual like um, way she thinks about political strategy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if you like, take a just zoom out for a second since the election of Barack Obama there has been movements that have been ripening millennials in particular for these kinds of big ideas whether it's occupy wall street or black lives matter or the dreamers or 350.org and the fight against keystone pipeline or the fight for 15 these are all millennial led movements that um, have been shaping building this like uh cachet of just discontent and anger and frustration and like um you know, wanting more transformative ideas. And for the first time, well, you had you had that translated into the Bernie Sanders campaign to some extent, but that was really the floor of what was possible. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think, represents millennials, not just ideologically and politically, but also demographically. I mean, millennials are more diverse than any other generation in American history. And, you know, the language she uses is much more our language rather than what Bernie Sanders comes from, which is much more from the old left. I think that it's just like the fact that there was this cachet of discontent that was building over time. And now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is just the first political expression of that, both demographically and ideologically. And um, I think we're just going to continue to see it with the election of more and uh, more progressive leaders, more socialist leaders, more younger leaders in the Democratic Party. And I, I think that Brianna is precisely right, that Hillary Kratz have not been able to quite process that the Bernie effect on Congress has been the election of Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. And Walid, I have a question that I imagine you're going to want to dodge, which is I think everyone wants to know whether Ocasio-Cortez, Omar and Tlaib will endorse Bernie, which would be powerful and important in a lot of different ways. Well, why would they endorse Bernie if all three of them are running for president? <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a constitutional uh, problem for Casio cortez but I think the others might be old enough. I'm not sure how old Omar is. but um, Well, I, I know that Ilhan has said on the record to The Intercept that she would prefer a female candidate. She said she's, I think she said one person she's looking at is Elizabeth Warren. Um, I don't know about Rashida or Alexandria. I mean, Alexandria, her one of her first political experiences was uh, working on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, Rashida has a very close relationship to Bernie, particularly because Bernie has been the most outspoken on Israel-Palestine. But look, I think it's going to be, I think everyone's taking a wait-and-see approach. I think there is this kind of coalition happening where people like Ilhan, Rashida, and AOC are able to bring in a coalition that appeals to people who want to see more diverse and female representation, and that's their primary political objective, and people who want um, social democratic or democratic socialist politics in America, and that's their primary objective. The thing that that nobody's talking about is that there aren't that many genuine neoliberals anymore. People who are actually committed to defending neoliberalism, and that's what I think. You know, there are all these people who defended Hillary Clinton's uh, weak policy positions in 2016 who are now totally on board with AOC's uh, program, and I think it just shows that what they were their actual primary political objective was not Hillary Clinton's. You know center-left, more neoliberal, more triangulated economic policy, but more that it was the primary objective and primary goal for them was representation. Yep. I agree with, I agree with parts of that, and I think that the, 
the thing that AOC figured out, and a lot of people have figured it out since 2016, it was kind of what I was getting to with Trump before, which is uh, Hillary Clinton, one reason the policies were more modest, and she wrote in her, her book what happened about some bigger ideas she had, was that there was this democratic timidity about coming out with something big that could be tagged as typical liberal spending, it's going to hurt your wallet, yada, yada. I mean, she wanted to do a sovereign wealth fund, which is uh, how, how serious was she? You know, people are people are skeptical, but kind of came against it because it was oh, it's a big idea. Instead, she came up with a lot of things that were kind of costed. And in the debates, remember there were four questions in the presidential debates and the VP debate about the national debt. Remember that national debt. Uh, and it was she could always say my plans pay for themselves, and Trump would just say no, they don't. And also my plans are free. Um, and so I don't think Democrats by by no means have Democrats embraced. We should just say whatever we want and not get away with it. I think what instead people realize is what if you take something big and bold and not means-tested and complicated, and you don't need to have an event with a white paper and a conference and five warm-up speakers that rolls it out because you have that press conference, and as Hillary would find out, the first question is, hey, what about your email? Uh, you, it, the, the smarter thing to do is just to believe – well, one, believe in something. Two, figure out the basics about something. Three, come out with it and defend it in a way that's really buzzy and – you're going to get attacked by Fox News, but you know you're going to like get wet if you walk out in the rain. Like this is just the, <laughs> the world they live in now is that they're going to get attacked and called socialist, and it really has created a space. But I think just the the dynamism of yes, we have an idea. No, we haven't figured out every element of how we pay for it. We're kind of done that because that's a sucker's game. I think that's very very influential for the more the the candidates who kind of defined this race so far. Brianna, uh, no, I think that's right. I think you know to to just lean into the cliche, the the Overton window has shifted. It's a it's a whole new ball game. I'm looking at uh, my Twitter feed where Stephanie Kelton has just uh, retweeted, you know, Waleed saying, um, you know, about about the new green uh, ASC's Green New Deal plan and saying, well, they've nailed the narrative. We're not holding the Green New Deal hostage to the quote pay for game, you know, and it's it's liberating and exciting. And uh, you know, the only question is. Are there still going to be Democratic candidates who don't understand how much the world has changed? And my suspicion is that people like Joe Biden, I mean, they're they're in the minority, but people but like Biden seems to be one that truly doesn't get it, who's still out here talking about how millionaires and billionaires aren't the problem with America, and who says things like, I have no sympathy for people with student loans. I mean, good luck with that, Bella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the other thing there is that, and this is where journalists play an incredible role, is that what you're going to see happen is, to, I mean, you're already seeing happen, which is politicians saying, look, there are many ways to achieve a Green New Deal. Look, there are many ways to achieve Medicare for all. Look, there's many ways to make Black Lives Matter in this country. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's and it's actually frustrating for people who are, you know, grassroots organizers or, you know, political operatives who are trying to spend so much time building uh, public consensus around these big ideas like Medicare for all or the Green New Deal, um, and then have politicians just say they support the ideas or the goals of those things, but not actually support the policies where where and evacuate the words of all of their meaning. Yeah, exactly. And so but, you know, most voters aren't paying attention to the level that organizers are or to the presses. And so it makes you have to make that part of the debate. And I was actually surprised to see Jake Tapper try to insert that in the debate with Kamala Harris. And I think you're just going to continue to see that um, so often that, you know, Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand or Elizabeth Warren will have their own 
versions of the Green New Deal um, that or try to try to say they support the goals of it, but not actually endorse the policy itself. And I don't know what to do about that problem other than have have members of Congress like, you know, have legislation or resolutions that concretely lay out what the proposals are. Um, but, you know, I just think that it's going to it's going to be a problem where um, where people are not actually saying what they're for. One other thing to, to consider is that there are kind of these structural barriers to getting some of these big idea programs implemented, right? So the follow-up question to do you support a Green New Deal is, you know, you know, how do you feel about the filibuster, right? Because if you don't, you know, they're, 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 you know, if you don't, if, if you want to support a filibuster, and I understand that you're not going to get the kind of majorities that you need to advance legislation, you're you're basically able to promise something knowing that you're never practically going to be able to do it and that you have like a fallback excuse that, you know, I tried my best, we just couldn't get the votes. So it's also incumbent on journalists to ask the, the broader question about how, like, do you understand the structural limitations to doing this? And are you also going to support those changes that would remove those barriers? I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, with a foreword by Angela Davis. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa is an ambitious masterwork of political economy detailing the impact of slavery and colonialism on the history of international capitalism. In this classic book, Rodney makes the unflinching case that African maldevelopment is not a natural feature of geography, but a direct product of imperial extraction from the continent, a practice that continues up into the present. Meticulously researched, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa remains a relevant study for understanding the so-called great divergence between Africa and Europe, just as it remains a prescient resource for grasping the multiplication of global inequality today. In this new edition, Angela Davis offers a striking foreword to the book, exploring its lasting contributions to a revolutionary and feminist practice of anti-imperialism. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney with a foreword by Angela Davis. Out now from Verso Books. It seems like another issue around where the Overton window needs to be yanked to the left in order to confront serious structural and institutional limitations that are in place is the Supreme Court. If someone like Bernie wins, he will not only have a Democratic Congress that is to his right, but an anti-Democratic judiciary dead set on blocking his proposals. Will someone, maybe Bernie, call for court packing, or is that a third rail right now? I, I don't have any insight into what Bernie's plans are. I personally think it's necessary. You know, I you know I think that you know to take the FDR example to its logical conclusion, the only thing that can pressure the court to act in a way that I would argue is both kind of uh, legally required and like ethically responsible um, with respect to these programs is to 
uh, apply pressure to its, its actual power. And, and the, the various court packing schemes that people like Sean McElway have been talking about, whether it's, um, you know, adding a judge, you know, uh, whether it's um, term limiting judges, uh, you know, I think it's, I, I, there's no way around um you know, backing some kind of intervention that's going to change the status quo, because what we're dealing with now is a decades-long barrier to legislative change. It, 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 I, I would say it's up to almost, um, you know, one of these litmus tests, quali- kind of qualifying requirements for all of the candidates. Waleed? We are at a stage in American politics that is parallel to the fight against Uh, the fight for abolition, the fight for the original New Deal and uh, union rights, the fight for civil rights, all of which faced enormous institutional um, and institutional counter-revolution from the way that Congress works to the way the Supreme Court works. And I think that there needs to be a really deep conversation about how our institutions are thwarting um, majority public opinion in this country at the time that we are becoming or, you know, we've always been a multiracial democracy, but with the demographic changes that are happening, I just think it's there's it just becomes so much more pressing. And so it's it's unfortunate that Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand have said, you know, they are not for abolishing the filibuster. But I, I do think this is like the kind of galaxy brain version of uh, left politics in this country is like, I think, you know, the Vox pundits have a point when they're like, I don't know how these big ideas get through Congress, given the way that the Supreme Court and the Senate um, are set up. That said, I don't know how basically any idea gets through Congress. I mean, look how little look how little legislation has passed in the past 10 years that is actually moving the needle on on um, on issues that matter to working families. But um, I think, you know, there is a there is a Uh, increasing rigging of American politics so that when democracy is made to tie itself into knots, corporate forces will have the field to itself. And that problem will continue to get worse over the next few years into the next, you know, one to two decades. And something has to give. I want to end by asking a few questions about Bernie and then a specific Justice Democrats related question. I want to talk about specifically about what a Bernie campaign might look like. My questions are, one, what do you think Bernie's campaign will look like? And how do you think this election's wide open multiplayer cage match will differ from a 2016 run that started as a protest candidacy against Clinton alone, really, and that only became a real candidacy when he received this huge and surprising response from voters? And then two, what do you think his campaign should look like if he is going to correct past mistakes, run to win and then win? Yeah, I think Bernie is a victim of his own success. He was able to transform the Democratic Party into embracing European social de- democratic principles around single-payer health care, free college, um, universal social insurance programs that would um, support you know working families uh, across across the country, um, and you know railing against uh, the oligarchy and billionaire class in this country. He basically made the phrase billionaire into a a bad word. Um, that said, now there are numerous candidates who are saying they already support basically everything he's put forward, um, even if we doubt their convictions. Um, and now, you know, I feel like in any debate, the first question Bernie Sanders will always get is, there are numerous candidates standing next to you on the stage who are younger than you, who are female, who are more diverse. Why should voters pick 
an old white guy from one of the whitest states in the country when the Democratic Party has seen the year of the woman, when um, there seems to be enthusiasm for younger, diverse candidates, why should they pick Bernie Sanders? And every time he gets asked that question, he struggles with it and he doesn't do very well. So, you know, I think that is he has to figure out if he wants to run for president, how he's going to answer that question in a way that doesn't sound as doesn't sound condescending, that doesn't sound like he doesn't care about diversity or women that um, and frankly, doesn't make it seem like he just thinks every other candidate on the stage is corrupt. I just don't think that will land well with the Democratic Party electorate. Um, but I also don't have many answers for him. I just think it's it's a problem that he's a victim of his own success, and it is it is going to be an issue for him. But what if they are all corrupt? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like that's that's kind of the problem. I think that I think that you're right, and I think that the thing that that Sanders struggled with in 2016 was actually saying the thing about the person he was running against. So as much as kind of the the Hillary Accolade crew was is very convinced that Bernie Sanders ran the ugliest, dirtiest campaign in the history of politics, the reality was the man wouldn't really touch her. He you know, famously says enough about the emails. He won't even hit her at her most vulnerable point, even with all that's at stake, right? I mean, there's a world in which it would be perfectly justified to go for the gun, and he didn't. So I, I, my only concern is, yes, he is going to have to articulate the reason why he's distinct from these other candidates. And the reason is, in fact, that he has the record of consistency and the integrity that shows that he is going to carry through his promises in a way that the others haven't demonstrated. And I think that it will be, it's not that that isn't true. And I don't even necessarily think there's a, it's not that there's a way to say that that doesn't, uh, isn't off-putting to the public, because I think the public largely understands this. It's why there's such low confidence in government. There's why there was all this excitement around both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, who are perceived to be outsiders. But I do question his ability as a person who does not like to make personal attacks against the, against individuals to actually kind of you know put the pedal to the metal and and do it. Um, so I think that it's going to take some pretty like some delicate messaging and some thoughtful consideration. But he absolutely is not going to get through this if he's not willing to make express why he is the one to pick. Two key issues stick out for me, and I'm, I'm sure there are others that might allow Bernie to really distinguish himself clearly in this crowded field where everyone wants to look like a progressive or almost everyone. Uh, First, there's foreign policy, particularly but by no means exclusively Palestine, including Palestine. And I think that Palestine, of course, is a profoundly important issue in and of itself because of what Palestinian people are suffering under occupation. But I also think it's central more generally to anti-imperialist politics in the U.S. because it's a clear way to distinguish between those who will make some anti-war noises and the small number who are truly committed to breaking from the militarist foreign policy establishment. My hypothesis is that foreign policy might be a sleeper issue in this primary. What do you think? I I think it might be. But look, I, and this might be my own bias um, toward domestic issues, but I think in some ways, Bernie Sanders, you know, the most, the most uh, visible foreign policy position people associate with Sanders is his support of Palestine, right? And I think that in some ways that's almost symbolic. Um, It's symbolic of his willingness to depart from Democratic Party orthodoxy, and it's symbolic of his commitment to taking principled ethical positions in defense of people and groups that are marginalized, despite the political risks of doing so. 
almost more so his value for that symbolic, you know, his position there is valued for its symbolic value than the actual, uh, you know, foreign policy um, effects, you know, uh, that would accrue if you were in fact president. I don't want to like overstate that, but I, I sometimes feel like there's this way that taking stances on foreign policy issues, whether it's Syria or, or, or Venezuela, et cetera, it, it's almost more about, it, it, there is this kind of like, Cult, you know, cultural cachet, political cachet to doing so that that seems to almost matter more than people thinking, oh, we're actually going to go into parts of the world and save lives or take a stance that's going to, you know, materially affect what's going on in other in other countries. That, that's all to say that I don't think that it, it doesn't, that foreign policy doesn't matter. I just almost think that it matters in a way that's a little bit attenuated. And these aren't, these aren't voters who are wonkishly thinking, you know, how are we doing, you know, you know, empire building, you know, this, we're not, it's not, not 1885 and everyone thinking about, you know, how we're going to expand capitalism or like liberate the, you know, the free, grow the free world or, or anything like that, you know. The foreign policy will be an area where the candidates probably have the most disagreements. So you might see in debates that this is the most tentious issue, whereas, you know, 75% of the candidates on stage might say, we all agree that Medicare for all is the goal. They will not all agree that, that they are not fans of APEC or that they are not fans of Benjamin Netanyahu and the, the Israeli occupation. Um, and at the same time, look, like you have rank and file members of the House, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, who have huge platforms and compelling stories and compelling personal narratives about why why they care so much about the Palestinian struggle and to bring peace and justice in Israel-Palestine. So um, I actually think, you know, there will be a little bit of conversation about this because there will be the most disagreement on it. Um, and I don't know where, I think every candidate except for Bernie Sanders will want to shy away from foreign policy. Um, Maybe, but maybe Joe Biden will be the exception to that because they're so because they don't want to get into what's such a polarizing issue uh, and what they think the Democratic Party electorate does. So whoever is like, you know, I imagine this is why Tulsi Gabbard threw her ring and threw her hat in the ring is because she sees there's a lane for someone to talk actively about it because other candidates will avoid it. So I think it will be an issue, and I think you know the Republicans will throw Democrats, no longer the friends of Israel, into the mix, and it'll it'll stir stuff up. Brianna, one thing that I would quibble with your response on is just that I, I think there is the never-endingness and metatastizingness of the war on terror, and it's whatever that's been going on since 2001, really has yeah. produced profound disaffection and alienation, not always by any means in an anti-war direction. For example, I do think it had to do a lot with, with Trump's election in ways that aren't often analyzed. And so if if one can really counterpose empire continuing with empire or turning towards social democracy domestically as as choices a choice that we need to make as this country i think it could be powerful i think that's right and i do think that there has been some interesting alignment between the kind of trump's isolationism and the approach of the left where it's the center left um that has become the vanguard of of, of hawkishness and, and continuing everlasting war and if he is able to draw that distinction, I think that he, he's likely to get some support, not just from Democrats, but if he makes it to the general, a lot of these kind of like isolationist Trumpers. The second issue I think Bernie could perhaps really distinguish himself with is climate change. Obviously, he will not be the only one talking about it. But if he talks about it in the right way and pushes a really radical vision for a Green New Deal, 
Do you think that that could be something important as a defining feature of the race? I think there will be a differentiation on that, um, especially around like, will people frame the Green New Deal as a some way to protect the environment or uh, a way to create jobs? Um, whether any candidate is going to go out and prioritize it as one of their top three or top five issues, whether they're going to talk about it in terms of industrial planning and the kinds of, you know, big government programs that the United States did in the 1930s and 1940s, that's to be seen. I mean, Sanders is the most likely to want to do that kind of stuff because of um, his ideology and his track record. Um, so there, there, it might be like Medicare for all where there are, you know, there will be differentiations around the size and scope and the seriousness of uh, people's proposals. And at the same time, like there will be an Ocasio-Cortez effect where journalists will continue to ask leading presidential can candidates, do you agree with what AOC said about the Green New Deal here and here and here? And I think that's like a very good accountability mechanism for, you know, making sure these candidates stay on the program. I mean, the you clearly saw, you're clearly seeing a counteroffensive around what is considered pragmatic and uh, practical in the Democratic Party. But so far, the Green New Deal like has overwhelming support amongst Democrats, independents, and Republicans. And is you know the fact that 70 percent, 70 something percent of Democrats would like to see Ocasio Cortez run for president if she was just old enough. That is more than who support Beto O'Rourke or Kamala Harris running for president. So I would think that. Democrat leading contenders for the Democratic presidential ticket for the nomination would see the winds uh, moving in the direction they are and try to try to go there or even go ahead of where it's at. Yeah, I think it, it'll be interesting, inter interesting to see, especially when debates begin, whether or not everyone who looks kind of similar now insofar as they've become proto standards start to look very different from each other as you see how they succeed or fail at articulating their vision, you know, how, how, how much they are personally committed to policy details in a way that demonstrates that they've actually given this real thought. Because uh, it's one thing to say in an interview with Jake Tapper, it's another thing to debate on a stage. My last question, I want to turn briefly to non-presidential races, since those matter too. And as I mentioned earlier, if Bernie somehow does become president, he's going to have a Congress that is likely going to be significantly to his right, a Democratic Congress. Waleed, Justice Democrats recently announced their first target for 2020, Representative Henry Cuellar. Explain why you chose him and your process more generally, including the candidate recruitment you're currently engaged in. And also, how many Democratic incumbents you all might be challenging ultimately? So we chose Henry Cuellar because he's a. There was all this press nonsense from Washington and Democrats on the Hill, where people were, you know, trying to rein in Ocasio Cortez and her relationship with the Justice Democrats or her relationship with the idea that there should be more primaries in the Democratic Party. And you know, Henry Cuellar is someone who is calls himself a Democrat but votes with Donald Trump 69% of the time. He has an A rating from the NRA. He takes lots of corporate PAC contributions from fossil fuel corporations, uh, private prison and immigrant detention facility uh, corporations that are for profit. Um, he is constantly saying nice things about Donald Trump. And it's a district that Hillary Clinton won by 20 points. So the fact that, you know, it's we're kind of putting it back on the Democratic Party establishment where it's like, really, you really want to defend this guy? Um, and so, you know, he's our first target to start to um, really 
build the case in the press and build the case amongst in the public about um, why we can have someone like an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or like an Ayanna Presley in that district. Um, there's no excuse in a district that Hillary Clinton won by 20 points. Further, uh, in terms of how we do candidate recruitment, it's, it's a long process. I mean, it's part art, part science, where uh, you're just trying to meet with as many people as you can in the district who are involved in politics, not involved in politics, uh, activists. Um, but it's really, really hard to find candidates who want to run against the Democratic Party incumbent, the Democratic Party's machine apparatus in a lot of these districts. It's really scary to run against it because you, if you want a political career, you would never run against a Democratic incumbent. That's why, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was someone who was completely outside the established political networks, whether those are Democratic Party networks or progressive political networks. And like, you know, we, we do face a lot. We hear a lot from activists on the ground and organizers on the ground that they're, they're scared to get involved because of um, that dynamic. That was true also of Joe Crowley. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of trying to build relationships, trying to see who wants to do it and, you know, find someone who is compelling, charismatic, who authentically can represent the community in a way that Henry Cuellar is not. And seeing, you know, if we want to take a shot on that person, you know, there are there are a lot of compelling people in this country who are bartenders or nurses or doctors or um, teachers who just need a little bit of encouragement and support from an organization like ours to get started. And, you know, I'll tell people who listen to your podcast, you can go to justicedemocrats.com slash nominate and nominate someone that you know to run for Congress. And, and we'll look through those nominations. And how many people do you think you'll ultimately be challenging? I, it's unclear. I mean, we recruited 12 people ourselves um, to run for Congress in uh, 2018, and then we endorsed about 40 or so others. So there, there might be also a, a relationship like that where it might not be someone we recruit directly, uh, but it's someone who's compelling, who we want to throw our support behind. So, you know, that was a case of someone like Abdul Al-Sayed, who we didn't recruit, but we wanted to throw our weight behind. I can't say how many we'll, we'll be endorsing or how many we plan to, but I think the important thing is that we showed that with one victory, you could start to change the world. And a lot of pundits like to say that the Justice Democrats win-loss ratio was very much in the loss. You know, we had a lot of losses, but we have a high risk, high reward strategy where um, we know that if we can, you know, elect a working class person against someone who's bought out by Wall Street, you can really shake things up. And so far, that hypothesis has been uh, proven true. Brianna, how, how do you see this process of getting more AOCs, Tlaibs, Omars into Congress? They have gotten so much attention, well deserved, but they are a small proportion of the Democratic caucus as a whole. I would first say that you know, more AOCs is a pretty high bar because <laughs> as, as I don't, I don't think it's a high bar to get people who have her, you know, share her politics, but I do think that she, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that I think that she is kind of an extraordinary candidate just as a, yes. as a human being. Her, you know, her ability to put into words, to, to frame issues and articulate uh, progressive causes in moral and ethical terms that center human dignity is like something like nothing I've, I've, I've ever heard. And the level of kind of thoughtfulness and sensitivity that she has, I would love to have a, a, a Congress full of those people, but I've met very few of them even in my personal life. So, um, you know, I, I think the goal absolutely uh, of getting more um, leftists in politics is one that's more easily achievable 
simply by virtue of the fact that a majority of people under the age of 30 pretty much share AOC's politics, you know, prefer socialism to capitalism. Um, and I think that there is a way in which it will happen uh, naturally over time. As much as the Democratic Party likes to focus on demographic shifts as the salvation for Democrats, you know, the fact that America is browning, I think that the fact that America's youth are increasingly left um, is, is a fact that carries as much optimism for me, personally. Waleed, parting shot? I mean, there is a lot of uh, uniqueness to Alexandria, and she is a phenomenal campaigner and a phenomenal congresswoman. Um, and at the same time, she, you know, I knew her, I met her in the summer of 2017. I think there's tons of people just like her who are compelling, are authentic, and really believe in a transformative vision to create an America that belongs to everybody and not just a tiny few on top. And those people exist, but they just don't want to run for Congress and no one's asking them to run for Congress. So we're taking on the burden of finding more AOCs, more Ilhans, more Rashidas, more Ayanna Presleys. And we'll see, you know, we'll see if we can find them. We'll see if they can win. And you better believe the establishment is way more prepared this time than they were in Joe Crowley's race in 2018. Mm. Well, Brianna Joy Gray, Dave Weigel, who left us about 25 minutes ago, and Walid Shahid, thank you all very much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Brianna Gray is a senior politics editor at The Intercept. David Weigel is a reporter for The Washington Post who covers elections and grassroots politics. And Walid Shahid is the communications director for the Justice Democrats. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after remarking that the revolution can only draw its poetry from the future. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. Sometimes once, sometimes twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution so we can keep this thing going strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Mm-hmm.